great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. He's not coming back. Had enough? Because I can keep going. Brick by brick, dollar by dollar, body by body. Or you can call your boss and tell him to shut down his operation tonight. When you look at me, what do you see? The answer's nothing. I have no feelings about you one way or the other. You're like, like lint or a bottle cap. You're just a thing to remove. The men I killed, your men, I gave them a chance. They made their decision. I'm giving you the opportunity to make yours. I've done some bad things in my life. I promised someone that I love very much that I would never go back to being that person. But for you, I'm going to make an exception. Greetings and welcome to The Thin Place, the podcast devoted to exploring spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are, as usual, Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. Happy golden anniversary, Todd. Well, thank you, Ken. Yes, this is episode number 50. Kind of hard to believe. Our, our movie for this episode, to celebrate 50, is The Equalizer, starring Denzel Washington, directed by Antoine Fuqua, written by Richard Wink. This has nothing to do with the movie, but I couldn't do it without saying, Jesus is the real Equalizer. <laughs> well... I guess that would make it a spiritual film, then. Yes. <laughs> so, Ken, apart from the fact that the film is opening this weekend, why are we talking about this movie? Well, I think that when we have a thin place perspective, we want to think about ways in which the film interacts with uh, our notions of religion, faith, or spirituality. And the thing that I went right to... Yet again, it seems like I've been talking about this a lot, is the violence and the representation of violence. Certainly for us as Christians, or for me as a Christian, we have a countercultural notion what violence is and what its proper role is. Or at least we should. I, I would think so. The Overall, I marginally like the film. I gave it a slight thumbs up. I like the first half a whole lot better than the second. And one of the reasons I did is because I thought the first half of the film was a bit more honest in its representation of the psychic and spiritual costs of living a life of violence and using violence to solve your problems. By the second half of the film... I felt like it degenerated a little bit more into a typical violent action revenge fantasy in which the people who were cruel or heartless or deserved punishment somehow got it meted out to them by picking on the wrong person. I have said a couple times in reference to this film that one of the things that it demonstrates, I don't think it's aptly titled the, right. the equalizer is not what we want. We don't want someone to equalize things. We want a bigger bully, a bigger champion 
to shift the balance of power in our way. We actually want a punisher. Right. So, and I totally agree with you in that the first half of the film is by far the most interesting from a, you know, a character. I mean, I think it's a better film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good example of, you know, when we talk about violence in film, it's not that we're saying violence has no place in film. Even up through the first kind of set piece, after that first set piece, there's some potential for interesting things going on um, in the film. But I think it might be worth us talking a little bit. What do we see in that first half, character-wise, that makes it interesting? The Equalizer is based on a TV series, I believe from the 80s, yes, uh, about a well. ex-government agent or CIA agent who has special skills and has somehow retired or gotten out of the business and uses his special set of skills to help everyday innocent people who are in over their head. This appears to be an origin story or a backstory of Robert McCall when the film opens, played by Denzel Washington, is not engaging in that altruistic, vigilante help of other people. He's just working at, well, it's not Home Depot, but the... Home Depot. Home Depot. Home Mart. Home Mart. And, um, yeah, he's doing a regular job. He's a little bit of a mystery to the people around him. He seems to have insomnia, and so every night he goes to a diner... Right. um, ...where he reads great books. We find out in about the middle of the film that part of what has prompted him to get out of the killing business or the spy business has been that his wife died, that his wife was not always happy with the life that he led or the job that he had and extracted from him some sort of promise that he would not be, quote, that person anymore. He would not do that anymore. But I think aside from just the mechanics of the promise, we see in the first half of the film what the wife might have seen or been talking about, which is Robert as a wounded person. You mentioned the insomnia. He has trouble, you know, he has trouble sleeping. He seems to be genuinely troubled by the cost of a life of violence has had on him or or wounded, not just physically, but, but emotionally. And one of the things that the film is really good at there and, you know, both the director and Denzel Washington is, you know, Denzel is great at, you know, that quiet, troubled look. I I don't think anyone does sadness better than Denzel Washington of the the major. And in the first half of the film, the director uses a lot of close-ups, extreme close-ups, um, and really lets Denzel work. A lot of soft lighting, too, from, from yeah. a technical standpoint. I think the film does some interesting things with having different lighting keys uh, for different parts of the film mm-hmm. and for different locations in the film. His, his apartment, uh, the diner where he goes to late at night, seem to have a lot of soft, low-key lighting that really reinforces the melancholy as well as the soundtrack. Um, And then other parts in the second half have high contrast, high key lighting and a little bit more of the traditional action feel to it, you know, and music to it. Yeah. So that first half, I mean, 
you know, we, we really do see a director who seems to be capable of giving us kind of the deep character study and, and it, you know, showing us the pain and the cost that this life of violence has, ex, you know, exacted on Robert. And that was why the movie actually fooled me at one point. It, you said you weren't fooled by this, but after that first major set piece, uh, which centers around Robert befriends a prostitute at the diner uh, who wants to get out of the life and become a singer, do some other things, and tries to buy her freedom from the pimp but is rejected uh, and eventually ends up killing the pimp and all of the henchmen. The, all of the henchmen. And at the point in which he has lethally wounded the pimp, but the pimp has not yet died, he sort of sits down and gives this, what we're expecting to be a triumphal, you know, right. you're dying kind of speech. Uh, and it's pretty sad. I mean, it's very soft. It's low key. And, and there's almost regret in his voice. He says, you should have taken the money. Yeah. Uh, you lost all of this. But it's not like wagging your finger of th there's some genuine confusion. Why didn't you take the money? Why did you make me do this? And then the pimp dies. Uh, and Robert says, I'm sorry. Yeah. And certainly the film at that point made me stand up and pay attention because I really thought at that point he was saying, I'm sorry to the pimp. I'm sorry I had to kill you. Um, that that I'm really genuinely conflicted about this use of violence and that it pains me and it hurts me. We tend to find out later on that he's more than likely saying, I'm sorry to his wife, his wife because he broke the promise not to be that person anymore. Although then later on, he totally when we talk about that difference between the first half of the film and the second half of the film, kind of walks that back, and by the the last act or the last part of the film, he's telling the real villain of the second half, I promised my wife I wasn't going to do this, but for you I'll make an exception. Well, it's like once he broke the promise, it was like, well, I'm over that line, may as well go whole hog. and May as well go whole hog. And even if there is an insight to be made from that. There's the difference between the tone and the attitude of the first half, which is I broke the promise and I feel bad about doing that, not just because I feel bad about breaking a promise, but because I recognize on some level that the promise was in my best interest or cared about, you know, me was was extracted based on something that on some level I shouldn't necessarily be doing. Whereas in the second half, it becomes a little bit more of that sort of gruff cavalier throwaway, like for you, I'll make an exception right. or something like that. And so the speed with which Robert goes from being troubled by the violence to relieved that he is no longer bound up and can do what he wants to do suggests on some levels that he doesn't really believe that his wife was right in extracting yeah. that promise, that he's happier, healthier, not just that the world is better off for freeing him up to become a super vigilante, but that he himself is happier and better adjusted. Right. And, Which is where we see the film, you know, tipping over into 
what we've been calling the myth of redemptive violence, and you know, that through the violence is redemption. It, it, there's a, a restoration of wholeness mm. to whether it's society or the individual. Right. Um, in this case, it's Robert. You know, by the end of the film, yes, he is still going to the diner at 2 a.m., but you very much get the sense it's now his choice. He's got his laptop with him now instead of just the sad little single book and cup of tea. He's setting up shop. He's and seeking out other places where he can use his skill set yeah. in order to make things right or to equalize things. In, instead of being the insular person who's kind of huddled in a, you know, healing, just leave me alone, now he is branching out, reaching out. Um, so he's, you know, much more interactive with his society rather than what he was before. Right. It's interesting on a on a visual level the opening scenes of the movie have that traditional exterior shot going into the yeah. going into the apartment uh, but rather than it be the camera being out of the apartment and then zooming in a la the beginning of citizen kane or psycho or something like that the camera is actually in the apartment looking out and it pulls back or it pans back which to me suggests that at the beginning of the movie Robert has been in retreat yes. you know he is in a shell uh, and then at the end of the movie it comes back to that only now he's in the diner and we're separated by the windows and we're you know we're retreating from him but it's not and it even looks like that classic is it Edward Hopper yeah Diner with Nighthawks, is that the name of the painting? I think so. And which again make, makes it feel much more lively um, at the end that you know he is now whole and he's he's part of the nightlife, not just you know stuck. Right. He's he's integrated into society and not just retreated into you know, what he wants to do. Right. Um, now we've talked mostly about Robert's character and the effect that violence has on him. One of my strongest reservations about the film in the second half is the way that this genre really speaks to our own cultural bloodlust as viewers. Yes. Uh, even as Christian viewers who perhaps know that we shouldn't cheer violence or want violence. And so this genre is specifically designed to get us over that hump or that reservation to try to get us to the point where we cease being ambivalent about the violence and start cheering for it so that we can put aside our moral reservation. I thought it was interesting that the day before we saw the film, I happened to be preaching out of Psalm 139, and that's a passage in which David talks about his own anger and hatred of the wicked and his desire that God or somebody would punish them. And he says in, in verse 19, If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count, my, I count them my enemies. And so I, I, I think there are places in the Bible where there is room for righteous anger or even hatred at 
someone who is doing something wrong in the desire to be the desire to see them punished or to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's significant that that passage very quickly transitions into the next verse. David says, search me, O God, and know my hearts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in my way everlasting. I always like to think that the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit maybe says, let's wait out, David. You know, you, you hate them. You really want me to destroy those who are, wicked. who are wicked. Well, let's think about that or the implications. If you're going to carve that out as your position, you need to be that much more diligent about the ways in which you examine yourself and your own practices. And I'm not suggesting that our practices or Robert's practices are anywhere near as evil as the Russian mafia in the film. But I am saying the film seems to have an absolute divide between good and evil in the film, not a recognition that those are degrees of depravity within the human heart of fallenness, but there are good people and there are bad people and we are good people and therefore it's okay for us to use violence and to cheer violence and we never have to be concerned about and our own bloodthirstiness. Right. And you know, in terms of the difference, perhaps, between the Russians and Robert, early on when the, the, when the Russians, after their pimp has been killed, they bring in kind of a fixer mm -hmm. to investigate, you know, who did this to us and to take care of the problem. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he, the fixer is very uh, knowledgeable and looks at things and says, now this was a very, very skilled assassin. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a person with a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And how do you get practice killing people? By killing, killing people. people. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, even though we are not told exactly what Robert's role was in the past, we know that he is very versed and practiced and skilled in killing people. And regardless of what side you're on, um, it just seems to me that that gets problematic in terms of, well, they're worse than we are. Well, why? You know, what makes his killing necessarily different? Now, maybe, you know, Robert wasn't forcing women into prostitution, um, wasn't selling drugs, all that sort of thing. And, that, and you know, the film, kind of, as you said, stacks the deck there. Right. But it, it really, you know, in terms of the violence and the killing, it's... Well, you know, I mean, there are answers to that. and But I think those answers are some of the ways in which the film really gets away from any pretext towards realism and right. becomes a revenge fantasy. I mean, Robert always gives them an opportunity, you know, so that it can be their own fault to say, right. call your boss and withdraw your thing and I won't wreak vengeance on you when he brings down two corrupt cops. He says, give the money back for the graph or I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this. Uh, so, I mean, I think there is, there are differences to be made, but I think those differences are more artificial in the movie and than in real life. Right. I, I think one of the ways in which it's not realistic is I think in real life there are shades of gray. Well, and we, we talk about David here. Uh -huh. And, yeah, I mean, his enemies were, we could probably make an argument, were much more wicked than he. Mm-hmm. 
But we're also talking about the same guy who had a man put on the front lines to be killed so that he could sleep with his wife. Yeah. Um, and, and David knows that. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, and I think that's part of what's in here. It's like, oh, and he said that the spirit of God kind of pricking him a little bit and saying, don't go down too far that road of kill the wicked because... Well... And it, which flash forwards me to Christ in, the, in Matthew saying, you know, do not judge lest you be judged. Yeah. You know. Well, and it's interesting to me in the psalm passage, the two specific concrete characteristics of the wicked are that they are bloodthirsty, right? And that they, in the King James translation, they take the name of the Lord in vain, which I don't really have time to get into a whole ex position of the etymology of that word, but really it's more than just cursing. It is the use or the misuse of language, Mm -hmm. you know, the attribution of taking on either the role of God or wearing the mantle of God or follower or Christian without necessarily following the commandments. And so, I mean, in some senses, I'm less concerned with the film's moral judgment of some people being more evil than others, then in the way the film panders to our own bloodlust or bloodthirstiness as an audience, because the violence of the Russian mafia is morally worse, or is presented as being more morally reprehensible within the context of the film, but it's also by and large redacted. When the Elena gets beat up, we don't actually see the violence. Right. We see her... The results. We see her scars and bruises. Uh, there's a place in which the fixer chokes to death another Russian prostitute, and the film retreats around a corner. It's almost as though saying, you know, when violence is actually addressed at people who are innocent, it's too painful to look at, and we don't want you to look at it, lest you start being disturbed by violence and uh, have a harder time cheering when we show you a glorious close-up Robert sticking a corkscrew through someone's jaw and it coming out the other end or slashing someone's throat or wrapping barbed wire around it, you know, any of these... Because then we're not going to see the difference between evil violence and good violence. Well, or we're not going to see the similarity between evil violence and good (laughs) violence. We're not going to see any similarity. We're we're allowed to, to the extent that we tend to think of them as being totally discrete or different categories, then we allow ourselves to cheer the one and condemn the other. And I think when we tie that into taking the Lord's name in vain or misusing language, I think that's such a severe prohibition in the Old Testament because God recognizes and David recognizes that that misuse of language, that misappropriation, becomes the foundation for any host of other sins. It's not like we wake up one day and say, yeah, God says murder is bad, but I think it's good. Right. It, it starts by manipulating language and say, it's not really murder, it's not really good. It's it, We become better and better at justifying what it is that we feel that we might have initially been ambivalent about. And I think the film both shows Robert doing that, initially being ambivalent and eventually justifying that, but never invites us to see any ambiguity or question in that or do anything other than cheer it. What 
you know, whatever ambivalence you might have about him using violence right. to fix things has to bow between the force of, uh, of our logic of, well, surely you're not in favor of Russian mafia people going around and choking people to death, you know? Right. So therefore, if you're not, you must be in favor of... And that's where, you know, we, we keep talking about how there's the first half and the second half yeah. in this film. And for me, the one part where, in essence, any kind of meaning or or perhaps this, this I don't want to call it inexorable flow towards mm-hmm. the genre, but this slavish kind of devotion to the genre, and we've got to get to the, you know, basically it's Rambo in Home Depot. Yeah. Um, is that in the film, when we learn about the promise to the wife, Robert's former boss you know, basically says, your wife, you know, saw something, and when, when she died, a part of you died, but it wasn't the part of you that she loved. Right. Um, there was this uh, humanity, there was something about Robert that, that was still alive, and if we follow the logic of this film, the part of Robert that becomes whole and active by the end of the film is this soulless killing machine. Mm-hmm. So, are we are we trying to you know, to say that the part of Robert that the wife loved was the soulless killing machine? Yeah, I mean that's what the logic well, of the film. I'd say soulless, but, but it's certainly unconflicted. Uh, no, unconflicted. <laughs> well, and and when he's in the act of killing. Mm-hmm. The way it's filmed. Yes, you're right. You know, it's like we get all these little, we see his eye, the close-up of the eye, and, and all the little calculations mm-hmm. of, oh, this will take six seconds, it'll take 17 seconds, boom, 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 and, you know, they're kind of planning it out, and then the exit, I mean, he's a robot, right. um, you know, killing, you know, whatever feelings he has before and after. There's even visual similarities between the way that that's shot and the Terminator, right. the original the exactly. Terminator. And, and so, you know, it's, at that point, the film just loses its footing in terms of the logic of things. Um, it's like, really? The woman loved his roboticness? Uh, well, or, I, I mean, you know, that scene with Melissa Leo, the NSA boss or the CIA yeah. boss, is the exact pivot, which a deconstructive critic would say is linking to opposites or tensions through the exploitation or the manipulation of of language, removing language yes. and these actual words of the part of you that she loved, the good part of you, permission or okay, from any kind of intrinsic meaning and just, you know, having, they're just free-floating signifiers, right. they're just words that have a positive um, th- that have a positive emotional valence that says, it was good that you that you refrain from violence for a season. It is now good that you conduct yourself in violence for a season. And the fact that you refrained is what made you good and she loved about you. But the fact that you are now not going to refrain is actually also the thing that she loved about you or right. something like that. So, so I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with really pointing to that scene as the place in which these two very different movies get fused, and it's a bad in a way in a way that that makes no that that can't be parsed logically, and therefore is covered up with. I'm back to the biblical right. The misuse of language to you know to satisfy our blood. And I think it would have been a it would have been a braver film or a better film if it had acknowledged in some way some some measure of ambivalence. 
or some measure of cost. Because then it could still argue, and intelligent people could still wrestle with, yeah, I, maybe on some level I agree that he had to do this. Yeah. But that's very different from saying, yay, let me cheer that he finally gets to do this and that it's good that he had to, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we could have in some sense had the exact same film right up until the end, and instead of the ending being everybody's happy, right? you know, if he's still back in the diner at 2 a.m. struggling mm -hmm. with his insomnia and he's... You know, still questioning, still hurt, mm -hmm. still, a, still a, the damaged person we saw right. at the beginning. This becomes a totally different film. Well, you know, my, my sister-in-law, she had creative writing class in college with uh, Orson Scott Card. And she mm -hmm. always used to say one of his big things to the writers was, there always has to be a cost. Yeah. Whether it's for violence or if something is achieved or gained at no cost, then that's the absence of drama. The, the real drama or, or pathos comes in where people struggle. The central lie of this film seems to be that you can get what you want, but you don't have to pay for it. Right. You know, it's just, and in fact, when he gets what he wants, he like wins the lottery. Yeah. And so it's not just there's no cost. He actually gets a reward. Right. Well, so I just wanted to ask you quickly. I mean, I, I did say at the beginning that despite my reservations in the back half, overall, I was still a marginal thumbs up because I like Denzel and, and I like the first half of the film enough that the genericness of the second half, while it disappointed me, didn't tip me over into thumbs down. How were you overall with the... I'm, I'm still not sure. Um, okay. The... It, the interesting thing to me is it's, it's reminding me about actually now two films that I've seen within the last year or so that to me felt very similar, and that that was the uh, uh, Vin Diesel Riddick film that had the first half that was really fascinating and then quickly devolved into a by the numbers, how is he going to kill everybody? Right. Um, and uh, the film Lucy that we talked about earlier this summer, uh, again, great, you know, interesting first part that sets up and then devolves, and it just it's got me thinking about kind of these directors who seem to be able to put together a really interesting kind of set up the premise. Right. But then whether it's the weight of genre or they just don't trust what, what, whatever the reason. Right. It then devolves into a kind of paint by numbers, you know, ending. Okay. So still on the fence about the movie overall. Yeah. But our message to writers and directors of Hollywood is... Come up with better yeah. endings. Well, <laughs> or, or do a better job. Follow through with your premise. Right. You're having some good ideas and some good premises. Yeah. But follow through with those. Don't just use those as a setup for... Things going boom. Violent set, <laughs> set pieces. Right. Okay. That's it. If you have questions or comments about this episode, feel free to drop us uh, a comment in the comment section. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield. You can also find back issues or episodes of The Thin Place at our original host, filmgeekradio.com.